Sego, Sewaguego, greetings everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of True Seed Media. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name program, and the host of the podcast. This is the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. On this episode of Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, we'll be talking with Carla Robinson on a wide variety of topics. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. We're just going to visit and see what happens. (laughs) We have with us our first guest of Season 5, Carla Robinson. Carla is a writer, producer, speaker, broadcaster, and president of Wassum Productions. Welcome to the podcast, Carla. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Let's get started. There's so much to talk about now. With um, Well, how about you introduce yourself further and where's your homeland and your community? Yeah. Uh, Yotes, Nugwa, Carla Robinson. Hi, I'm Carla Robinson, and I'm Heisla on my father's side, and I'm Heltzuk on my mother's side. I grew up in both of my parents' communities. So I was born in Kitimat, which is just just south of the Alaskan Panhandle in British Columbia, and uh, it's along the ocean. So I was born there. We lived there till I was probably about, I don't know, two years old. And then my dad got a job in my mom's community of Bella Bella, which is like further down the coast. So we lived there till I was about five. And then he went back to Kitimat. So I moved back to Kitimat. So I mostly know Kitimat and have just visited Bella over the years. And it was interesting because my mom married my dad and moved up to Kitimat. You know, I, I saw how that was for her. And then, yeah, when I was 18, I when I graduated from high school, I got accepted to Carleton University at the last minute in August at, for their mass communications program. So my community fundraised and I was able to go. So I lived in Ottawa and I did my undergrad. And then I moved to London, Ontario, and I did my master's in journalism. And then I got a job out in BC with BC TV News it was the biggest private broadcaster in Canada at the time. That's when I was started working in broadcasting. So when you moved back to BC, was it close to your home community? Yeah, sort of. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. Kitimat's an hour and a half plane ride, jet plane, about an 18 to 16 hour drive. So it's a good commitment. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting when you said your mom moved to your dad's community. And so when you, what do you think 
she taught you about moving to another community and adapting? How did she adapt? My mom's a bit of a house mouse, but she just had a close little circle of friends and stuff like that. You know, my dad was a public works foreman and he came from a big family. And it was weird, actually, because my mom went to residential school. When her and my dad got together, she was only just turned 18, I guess. And so she had been in residential school since she was four years old. My grandmother, her mom, had also been to residential school. What residential school did they go to? I think my grand went to Kokolitsa, but I can't be 100% sure about that. But I know my mom went to Alert Bay when she was four, and she doesn't remember very much about that, just a few memories. Then Port Alberni until grade 11. And then that's when she met my dad and moved up to Kitimat. So when she got up to Kitimat, like my dad's mom, my grandmother was the Muthmujik, which is the matriarch of the community. And so when she asked my mom, what is your clan? And my mom didn't know. And she was just shocked. Like, how do you not know your clan? And what are we going to do about this? So she decided to adopt my mother into her clan. Quite unusual, because usually the, you know, when you're in a marriage, you're of different clans. Yeah. So my mom agreed to it. She didn't quite feel right about it, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, like she was just... She probably yearned for her own clan. Yeah. Because she had a clan. Yeah. Yeah. And years later, she did discover that she was... Uh, Raven Eagle Clan from Bella Bella. And her family, you know, really got to discover that too. And But it was hard for me because I was raised in a beaver clan, taking part in feasts and naming ceremonies and stuff that's like that. That's your dad's that. clan. And that's my dad's clan. Yeah. So I was raised to feel or think of myself like a beaver. Because our clans are so much part of our identity. Yeah. But I, when I moved to Vancouver, I got into the canoe journeys and the healing canoe journeys. And I also became part of the Heltzuk urban singers and dancers. Mm -hmm. So I got to learn about my mom's side of the culture, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, so it was really interesting getting to know the Eagle Raven clan, th those qualities. Just, it was just neat and different than. And did you identify then when you got to learn? Yeah, um, I always feel like I'm kind of straddling both. The one I was adopted into and the one that was passing through my mom's side. So, it, yeah, it was... That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess it, you can look at it like the more clans, the stronger you are in your culture. <laughs> yeah, like I understood my grandma's clan and the responsibilities that they had. I was the youngest grandchild out of hundreds, not hundreds, but maybe hundreds. There's, she had a lot of grandchildren. Yeah. And so the way things are handed down are like through family and through age and through gender or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was like last on the list. <laughs> I wasn't going to inherit anything, really. I could just be an observer. You know, like I could just contribute, yeah. help out, volunteer or whatever. Yeah. So there was no pressure on me. I felt, anyways, this is a younger grandchild. Mm -hmm. And getting to know my mom's side of things, 
But there's a lot of artists in her family, the Hunt family. You know, I see that with the Eagle Raven clan, the artistry. Whereas the Beaver clan, it was a real sense of responsibility to the clan system, holding potlatches or, or yeah. feasts. We call them yeah. feasts. You know, doing the work. Yeah. Like yeah. a beaver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Busy. Busy. <laughs> yeah. And my grandmother would tell me, just because, you know, the you're from the double beaver clan doesn't mean that you're any better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like drawing the short stick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, you got to do the work. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. look at it like that. Don't get all puffy. That's when people lose their way. Yeah. Sure. Oh, wow. It, your community just sounds so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so when you moved to go to school at such a young age, what kind of obstacles did you find that you had to overcome? Yeah, I was 18 when I left. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had a broken foot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tripped on a rock that kids were playing street hockey with. And uh-huh. So I was on crutches. I was flying students standby. I didn't know who I was going to go stay with. You know, they're just random kind of people. Yeah. And I just panicked and I just told my dad, I was like, I don't think I can do this. What if they don't like Native people there? You know, I won't have my community to fall back on. And I was just like, what if I can't make it back here? What if (laughs) my brain was just spiraling? Yeah. And my dad said, if you don't learn to say goodbye, you're not going to be a journalist. Mm. You've got to learn to say goodbye if you're going to be a journalist. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So he really helped me because it felt like I was jumping into this black abyss. And I was just like, oh, okay. And so when I got over to Ottawa, it was actually kind of a relief because people didn't recognize me as Native. And there was kind of a heaviness in BC because there was the Reform Party and there was like anti-Natives, you know, fishery rights debate. It was really redneck, rednecky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was really hard to be Indigenous. You yeah. know, like it was really... So when I was in Ottawa, in some ways at first it felt like I got a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, people wouldn't automatically judge me. But then I had a few scary experiences there. So it was just, oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But I lived in Ottawa for six years, and I found the Native community eventually. We always find the Native community. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was so happy to find it in Ottawa. I was like, yeah. I felt like Forrest Gump. <laughs> And that I just would bump into, I volunteered at the radio station at the university with, with David, was it David Delary or Alan Delary? I can't remember. But anyways, at the radio station and they were interviewing Elijah Harper. And then we went out for dinner after, and I was just mm-hmm. reading news and community events. And so it was so nice meeting Elijah Harper. Yeah. And way back then. Way b- That was like in 1989. Yeah. You know, when they were really right in the midst of that whole Meech Lake stuff mm-hmm. and constitutional talks. And then my roommate was Mohawk. I had moved out of the first place. So I met this uh, Mohawk lady from Kahnawake, um, Margaret Horn. And she was, I just rented a room from her. And then that whole stuff with Kanyage broke out and she was working for the solicitor general at the time and 
the clan mothers had asked her to speak for them because some incident happened with a military helicopter down in Danyage, which is just over the American border. So I went with her through all these roadblocks in Akwesasne and went and I went right in the middle and I watched, got to watch the clan mothers make decisions about what was happening there. And I was like, this is wild. It was just so cool. I don't know why, but it just seemed like the creator or whatever just always brought me towards Haudenosaunee people as friends or whatnot. It was just mm-hmm. interesting. And you felt a connection with Haudenosaunee people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I felt a real comfortability. It was almost like, oh my God, you guys are like so much like at home. You know, you have the really gentle ones and you have the really forward, <laughs> you see, oriented. It was just like, oh my God, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the familiarity of our community sometimes. Yeah, it was definitely. I noticed it from a very, when I was in Ottawa. Yeah. And even when I went to Western, I did a, I decided to do one of my first television stories on the media in Six Nations. And that's when there was two newspapers, like the Tekka. The uh, Tekka and the Turtle. And the Turtle, yeah. Yeah. So I did a story on that. It's just really interesting and really, it ended up being picked up by like the Baytown Broadcasting System. So it was on all the CKCOs and CK whatever. CJ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in London, like across, and right across the country. So it was interesting. Wow. It's great when you can connect, find the Native community wherever you are. It really helps you out to, I guess, not be so lonesome for your home community. So then, but you always knew you could, you were going to go back to your community, did you? Yeah. Like I I always thought, okay, eventually I'm going to go back. And when I was doing my master's program, I didn't really, I didn't think I was going to be able to go back so soon because I got a scholarship to work for Canadian Press. Mm -hmm. But then I got a job at BCTV and I really wanted to switch into television broadcasting so that's how I ended up back in BC. And I worked for BC TV just for the summer. Then I worked at Indian Affairs for a while. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to work in government. <laughs> <laughs> but it got me through. Yeah. It got me through the winter. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got on with this program called All Our Relations. Yeah. All My Relations. And it was a news and current events Program. So I was an intern reporter, ended up working on stories for them. So when me and my producer were pitching it at Banff to try to get CBC to pick it up, then I that's how I learned about the news anchoring job with CBC News World. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up living in Toronto. Oh, yeah. You got that job and you were on national television, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What was that like? Because there's not many Indigenous anchors, yeah. even today. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really like when I actually got offered the job after interviewing and whatnot for it and screen testing for it. It was, I was like, ah, like, what if 
people get jealous of me and attack me. And I was just like, my usual. <laughs> and then went to, I went for a walk on the beach down in Ambleside in northwest Vancouver. And I picked up four rocks. Like, I just scooped up four rocks from the ground. And then I was like walking and I was like, what should I do? Because I wanted to tell stories. Yeah. And... I was news anchoring is telling stories, but it's just, it's not on the path that I was going after. Yeah. So I was like, but it's a great opportunity. And I looked at my rocks I was holding and one was bright yellow, bright white, dark black, and red. And they were almost all the same like size. And something just told me, you got to take this got to take this and so I took the job and I had a really high learning curve yeah because you have to know all the reform party all the liberal party like the queen mum who's that <laughs> what's going to be the significance when she dies mm -hmm. <laughs> and to so I would have to go and when I first met Drew he just he laughed when he saw, he's, I had this huge, thick book about Trudeau. And he's, <laughs> you're such a geek. I love it. <laughs> and I was like, the old Trudeau, the dad. The dad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was just kind of trying to learn as much because as Because when you're interviewing people, you sort of have to know the background of politics oh, and, yeah. and uh, monarchy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that as... Indigenous people, we don't, that's not our, that's not our, our systems. Yeah, our bag. It's like <laughs> someone, if you try to tell people, you're really like, I, you know, I'm fascinated with this Harry and Meghan stuff, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of people are like, oh, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I don't know. So it was a really, it was a really tough jumping on that ramp of, but and I broadcasting is competitive, isn't it? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Like You constantly have to. It's tough because I'm competitive in what I do. Like, mm -hmm. I will try to do the best that I can do. Yeah. Like, the background stuff of that would be hard to see coming or yeah. whatnot. So it was like, it was a struggle. And It's I, a different way. It's a different, I always think it's a different worldview. Yes. Yeah. It really is. And for me, there was politics involved, and I would have to figure out the politics of the newsroom, and that was very difficult. But at the same time, it was also nice to, when I would be working, and then I would see something not done right, I could say, yeah. Look, yeah. You got to look at both sides here. Yeah. Like with the Mi'kmaq fishing or what happened on six, yeah. Highway 6 here. I would be able to be there to point things out. Yeah. And so that was good. And I had a show called Absolutely Canadian, the First People's Edition for years. And it was a gentle show. It wasn't like hard hitting political thing or anything. It wasn't allowed to be. And so it was good, but it was also very difficult being at the front line. Like when I, I resigned in 2012 mm -hmm. and Drew came into the office with me when I was packing up my stuff and I found two other letters of resignation that I had forgotten about. 
and mm-hmm. I had been talked into staying. And so when you're at the forefront, you, you deal with a lot of old, outdated thinking and colonial thinking. Yeah. Like, for example, when I worked, when I did Absolutely Canadian, the first People's Edition, we were doing a lot of local, covering a lot of local stories about the residential schools. And like, my producer would keep writing it as former residential school student over and over again. And I was like, and so when I would rewrite, I would write survivor. Yeah. And it was so-and-so is a survivor. And I got in trouble for that. Mm. The person who looks after the grammar, grammar police, she said, they're not survivors. Mm-hmm. They're residential school, like that. This is our policy. And I was like, no, this person, if you look at their story, they're a survivor. Yeah. And I'm like, my aunt is a survivor. Yeah. My mom is a survivor. Mm-hmm. They literally su- survived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they literally were tried to be killed by yeah. someone. Yeah. And they survived. Yeah. So they are survivors. Yeah. And so she, she was like, no. And another executive was like, no. And I was so happy when a group of senior reporters stood up for me in an email, in a public corporate-wide email. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And so people are standing up for me. And then they were like, "Wow, no, it is yeah. former residential school. And I just had to eat that, just had to suck that up. And I was just like... That's so frustrating. It was yeah. very frustrating. And it was a few years later that Wab Canoe made the same arguments. But things were changing. Yeah. In, in just, I don't know, three or four years. And also he had more leverage because he could say, oh, I'm going to quit or whatever. And so they, it was years later, they changed it. Yeah. But it was... When you're trying to battle that system every day, yeah. it's just... It's know, so tiring. It's so tiring. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like... Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, like, sometimes the people that were telling me not to quit were people in our community. They're the only brown person we see on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to lose you. you yeah. Know, like, and I said, there's other brown people. that they, they were reporters. And yeah. you'd only see them once in a while. Yeah. But I also got to um, fight for the Native reporters that were there, too. Mm. Fight for them to be able to tell whatever story that they wanted to tell. And look at, because of you and, and the fighting you did, today they have an Indigenous department, mm-hmm. you know, and I see stories about our communities all the time now. Yeah, it's, yeah. I know, it's, it's, it was, it's good to see this renaissance. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the reporters, the Indigenous reporters who came before me, who laid the groundwork for me, like Dan David used to work at CBC, Brian Miracle used to work for CBC Radio and the Globe and Mail. Brian gave me good advice. He was like, don't worry about your grades when you're doing your master's program. Of course, do as well as you can, but get a portfolio together. Like I covered a conference down in Florida. I went to Florida on my own dime and I covered this national native conference on something. And then I asked the different 
media outlets if they wanted it. And at first they were like, but then something happened there. And then all of a sudden everybody wanted me to talk on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a student at yeah. journalism school. So he's get a portfolio. So that advice was priceless. And that's what got me a job at BCTV, having that demo tape, having that portfolio. And Dan gave me a freelance job with Aboriginal Voices magazine. Oh, I remember Aboriginal yeah, Voices magazine. It was such a great magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So he just got anything to pitch, and I was like, and um, so I, I pitched Maxine Noel, and I did a profile on her, and she invited me to hang out with her for a, a day, and I was like, and she's a pretty private person, so it was a pretty big, you know, nice. I, I think it's it's. My uncle, my dad's brother, he wrote a book and he was, uh, what do I call it? He worked for Indian Affairs. And so he was, I don't know if he was a regional director or whatever, but he did lots of writing too. I got to see it through him, then my sister. Oh yeah, your um, sister, the author. Yeah. Eden Robinson. Eden Robinson, (laughs) yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were like lights that I could follow too. Yeah. It's good to see that it's all building to us being able to tell our stories the way the way we want to tell them because i i think that indigenous storytellers when we conjure (laughs) we can tap into so much magic yeah and it's it's giving us that space to do that giving us the space to heal because Mm. Many of us have grown up in colonial systems. Yeah. And and also communities that are still healing. So it's we go out into this world and we like to be a good writer and stuff. You also have to trust, have a good sense of trust and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see where indigenous storytelling is going mm-hmm. and how deep it's 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 going. So yeah. Because we have so much to draw on, resilience, trauma, (laughs) healing, not healing. (laughs) There's just so much that we have in our collective experience. I know. Like you go into the healing community, like Mm -hmm. our indigenous healing community, they are light years ahead of non-native healing. And Mm -hmm. it's just because they see things from a different point of view. They see things from a different level or vantage point. And we don't have, although we've been impacted by colonialism, we're not, say, like a British person or a white person or whatever, where you're immersed in that, where you're, it's, you can, it's hard to see out of it when yeah. you've been raised in it for generations. So they're just starting to see. And plus, we know that was not us anyway. Yeah. We knew that was not our way. Yeah. It was foreign to us to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, a a complete expert on it, but I do notice that some of the storytelling way, like the Hollywood storytelling ways, I think drew a lot on our indigenous storytelling, mm-hmm. our mythical storytelling. Mm-hmm. Studying it. Yeah. And and then of course it's industrialized and it's formulized and whatever. Yeah. But it's for us, it's like getting to know our own way of telling those stories and being really empowered and being really so it's exciting. And 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so happy to see when I see different Native films or Native podcasts or stories or whatnot. It's just, oh, that's so cool. My God, like in the early 90s, would you believe that? Yeah. And I just watched, I watched the whole season of Res Dogs. That mm -hmm. was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because that's Indigenous storytelling. And I just watch the film Rosie, that's Indigenous mm -hmm. storytelling. Yeah. And I can tell the difference. Yes. There's just something in those stories that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. Like yeah. I would say Native people are really good with truth. Yeah. Like there's a genuineness. There's a thing. <laughs> there's also a spill factor. I don't know if you've ever encountered that. You meet a random Native person and they just spill. <laughs> there's a generosity there. There's a truthfulness. There's an openness. There's a realness. And you can see it yeah. in shows like Reservation Dogs. Mm -hmm. The humor is in the truthfulness. The humor is in the connections yeah. with people. And also how we can love each other despite our faults, mm -hmm. despite our... And authenticity. Yeah. There's an authenticity. Yeah. And just like a really good visit, we got really off topic. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> but that's how we know we're having a really good visit. <laughs> that's another truthfulness of Indigenous people, that when we visit, we just like visit. We just and, and then sometimes we find that you, like, you can get... It seems like you're way off topic. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's something a little, a little pull and a little pull here. Whoop, and it brings it all back to what we were first initially talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so with all of this storytelling all over the place that you were doing, <laughs> do you, did you find yourself, and meeting your husband and moving to his community, did you find yourself... How did you find that you had to adapt? Oh. Or if you did have to adapt. Yeah, I guess I did. Like we lived in Toronto for a bit and we had, and he was trying to start his own business and there. And you have to adapt if you live in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> and we were finding ourselves visiting his relatives in Six Nations every weekend and like just trying to get out of the city. Mm -hmm. And I had always wanted to have a rental place like a rental, because I was like, eventually I want to leave CBC and I want to have another income. So I was always like keeping an eye out on realtor.com and I saw something in Brantford and I was like, what if we buy a place in Brantford, live in one of the units and then build in Six Nations eventually? Because Drew really wanted to go back to Six Nations. So we bought a fourplex there and we renovated it over the years. And we kept trying to plan to build in Six Nations, but it was just, it was really hard when we're, you're so busy and yeah. there's so many rules, you know, yeah. and there's so, it's so hard to get um, money for it. Mm -hmm. So it was like, we just found it very challenging. So we bought a house in Brantford and then we eventually bought um, a house in, Brant in Six Nations and we were going to fix it up to move there with the kids. Mm -hmm. And then they were they had a rebellion because they were in high school and doing lots of sports and they had their friends and they were like, no, 
Oh, I don't want to go live out in the country and be all alone on an island now. <laughs> so we were just like, okay. So then we rented it out. And just after the pandemic, all our kids moved away and they're out on their own. And so we just said, let's sell our house in Brantford and move out and build our house. So we were planning on building a house. We had designs, but it's just so hard with the financing and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So we're like, okay, we'll just live here for now and eventually build our other house. I was a bit worried being someone that's not from there, but mm-hmm. I have friends there. I get along with Drew's family. And no, I get along with Drew's family. <laughs> I gotta <laughs> stick that humor in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I I'm happy that he's happy. Yeah. And and I'm enjoying the space to yeah. the transition. How often do you go back to your home community? Every I try to go back every summer. Usually I don't go in the winter cuz the weather's so unpredictable mm-hmm. up there, but I try to go back every summer. And we've brought the kids back there too. Yeah, the kids They've gotten to know Six Nations a little bit through arts programs here and and relatives. But when you go back to your community, do you find that because the connection is strong with our homelands, it doesn't take long to just feel so at ease and feel so connected and feel so at home. Yeah, I do feel that in BC and I do feel that up in Kitimatis. Oh, I can finally, I can just relax. And one one time when I was living in Brantford, I was like, oh, I was really homesick and I wanted to be home for the holidays. And I was just like, and a friend of mine is, she's a spiritual person in Chilliwack. Uh, She goes to Longhouse there and she looks after their helps look after their ceremonies and stuff. And she called me and she missed me. And she was like, when are you moving back to BC? And I was like, I don't know. You know, I'm here for now. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. And she's like, you know, a woman is the most strong in her territory. Mm-hmm. And I was like, felt like a stab to the heart. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I know. I Like, yeah, yeah. And I, but it made me realize that I had been almost reticent to put down real roots here, to really reach out to people and to really allow people into my world. I was like, there, I was just holding myself, you know, the distance from people. And I didn't even realize it. I was like, because I was like, this isn't my homelands, you know, mm-hmm. like even Brantford. And, I have to ask the land if I'm okay, if I can be here. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, so I just put tobacco down and I went for walks and I was just like, is it okay for me to be here? Mm-hmm. You know, and can I accept this as my home? Can mm-hmm. I be? And I really got a, like a good feeling. Yeah. Like I just got a really good feeling and... It was so weird. It was like after that, people started reaching out to me mm-hmm. and asking me to be part of their projects or programs around here. And I met new friends. Yeah. And and my friendships deepened with people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It was just, it was like a, 
it's like the energy just opened up and I felt more grounded in the in my area or in my space yeah so I found that interesting and um so in a way my friend helped me yeah you know yeah that's so great (laughs) (laughs) well I've always thought that you belonged here in Haudenosaunee territory (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) One thing that I wanted to touch on is that I found so interesting is I remember a time you were telling me that you went to comedy school, and I found that so interesting. And I just wanted you to just touch on that a little bit and talk about that. What was that like? And because I am so interested in comedy myself. (laughs) Yeah, that was short right after I left CBC. I found that I could, I was accidentally funny, you know, and when I try to be purposefully funny, I would just like, so I thought, I'll take this comedy writing course. And it was a night course. So it was with a guy named Larry Horowitz. And I was the only woman in there. There was like 14 (laughs) guys and me. Yeah. (laughs) So... He was like, you're kind of uptight. I said, I (laughs) did just come from broadcasting and CBC. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's why I'm here. I want to unwind. I mean, I had contemplated stand-up comedy, Mm -hmm. but with three kids, there's no way you can go on the road and Mm -hmm. earn $150 a gig (laughs) (laughs) and play in bars and, you know, or whatnot. So I realized, oh, okay. Like, because they were doing, the other guys were doing like Second City and they were doing comedy, walk on comedy things. Yeah. And like hanging out at those things. I just couldn't (laughs) do that. But I did. I learned a lot about the kind of formula of comedy, like the setup, the callback, the, you know, everything like that. Mm -hmm. And when I did my, we had to do a three minute stand up in yuck yucks. And I was like Was it nerve wracking? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> I was so nervous. And like with all my experience in mm. broadcasting, yeah. you'd think I could hold a mic. So I kept waving the mic around. <laughs> and I was like waving it around. And I looked up at Larry in the corner and he was like this. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's like I was like, <laughs> well, our listeners can't see, but yeah. it's really funny what she's doing. Oh, sorry. I, I was like bringing the mic to my mouth and back and forth and back and forth. Like, what, what do you mean? Like this? Yeah. And my whole skit was not the whole thing was bloopers, being a news anchor, my days of being a news anchor and whatnot. And so I decided that stand up comedy wasn't my thing. <laughs> But, but it was good experience, right? It was good experience. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it helps it helps me with writing too to yeah. to go, oh, okay, like this like the back and forth yeah. and callbacks and stuff like that. It's like a similar thing. Yeah, I found when I write, I like to read and I like to write dialogue. I think dialogue is really, can be really funny too. And I remember reading one time that, I don't know who said it, but they were talking about Carrie Fisher as a writer. And they said, Carrie Fisher was the best dialogue writer. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you can get really good at writing dialogue. Maybe that's what I should be doing. 
Yeah, I, she, I read her a couple of her books, and it was amazing how much she fine-tuned Star Wars. Not just her lines, but she was a script editor for yeah. them. And, yeah. like, a lot of the punchy, the iconic and memorable are from her. Yeah, they, yeah. someone said she was the best dialogue writer ever. So with your your business, when did you start your business? Carla Robinson Media Production. I let that one go to rest. Mm-hmm. I started another company called Wassum Media Productions, which means heart in Heisla. Mm. And yeah, I had tried to start my own company, media production company, when I left CBC, but it was really hard with three small kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really felt like I needed to go to film school too. And oh, also yeah. I was burnt out. It was just... I was burnt out from storytelling, Mm. like documentaries. Like I tried to do a documentary and it was just like, when you're burnt out, it's painful. So. I love documentaries. I love documentaries (laughs) too. I was like, it was really hard to feel so triggered telling stories. Mm. It's really hard. And I didn't want to leave it, but I felt like I had to leave it for a while. Like I had to let it rest. And yeah, so I went and I helped my husband. We bidded on a contract for this. It's called Aboriginal Conservation Program. And uh, to teach, to do workshops, energy conservation workshops in 65 Native communities. Mm. And then convince people to do energy efficiency things for their, ho- for their house. Oh, yeah. And you think trying to sell people on a free service was easy no (laughs) no it wasn't but I learned how to get a community excited about something oh yeah so if you can get a whole community excited about energy conservation and have them come out for an evening (laughs) then you can get them excited about anything (laughs) yeah I would say I would think so too yeah so that actually helped me in film like when I was working on Monkey Beach, mm-hmm. like I was, I helped with the background actor coordinating uh, extras and, and helping the locations people and troubleshooting a community liaison kind of work. And basically it was like the Aboriginal Conservation Program, just <laughs> getting people excited about it, getting them on board, troubleshooting through people's yeah. concerns and I helped Zoe Hopkins and um, Big Soul and Paula Devonshire's company. They did Run, Woman, Run. Oh, that was an amazing film, Run, Woman, Run. I really liked that film. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. definitely got a magical touch to it. But yeah, just finding the extras for that, that, that was my job. And... Yeah, it was just getting people excited, getting people to come on board. So that's, yeah, I believe that almost any job you get is helpful in some ways. Yeah. And my dad always would say, even if you're a janitor or even if you're working in public works thing, it's like you're, it's helpful you know. Your dad had the best advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a unique individual. Like, mm-hmm. he he didn't go to residential school. 
my grandfather didn't allow the him and his brother to go to residential school. And my brother, my dad wanted to go to residential school because he wanted to be an engineer. Mm. And, and so he was heartbroken that he didn't get to go to residential school. But really, would he have become an engineer? They said it was school, maybe, but it really wasn't school. <laughs> yeah, he was self-taught in some ways. He was taught by the local, I don't know what you call him, but settler teacher. Like mm-hmm. she, she taught the local. Oh yeah. Like, white children. Mm -hmm. So he would go and learn from her sometimes. So he learned, he always bragged about having a grade two education, but she taught him up to grade eight, like Mm -hmm. grade eight math and stuff. So he was actually like an engineer with the public works Mm -hmm. that he was in. Mm -hmm. And, but he was not emotionally damaged. Like he Mm -hmm. did not have to shake that off his whole life of like, what a lot of people who yeah. went to residential school. So he could be loving and he could be passionate and he could be geeky. And like, he would take us to the planetarium. He would take us to the Abbotsford Air Show. He would take us to whatever. <laughs> like we, he was always, let's go pan for gold. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. He was always. Let's go pan for gold. <laughs> he was so I think thinking outside the box, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. was a parent who just, mm-hmm. he was raised by elders who lived pre-contact. Wow. Like they, they grew up in a community where there was like the white people hadn't gotten to yet. Mm. So it was, they were in their 80s and 90s and stuff. So yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Like That sounds like a great place to live. <laughs> It wasn't easy. It was during the Great Depression, but even still, yeah. Yeah, Knowing what we all know now. So, oh, I just want you to touch on your daughter, too, and her success. Oh, yeah. She's in a movie. Uh, In a TV series. In a TV series. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's called 1923, and it is a prequel to... Yellowstone, mm-hmm. and she plays Bahmudi, I think it's called, Bahmadi. But she is, there's a residential school block or theme or storyline, I should say. And so she is the best friend of Tiona Rainwater, who is rebelling against the nuns and the priest mm-hmm. uh, who are running the residential school where they're at. And so Lena plays her friend who tries to hate Tiona, or li- she listens to her and whatnot, and she's, let's just get out of this. Let's just do our time and get out. Yeah. And Tiona fights them back and then gets beaten up. It's really harsh. Trigger warning. And, yeah, um, I wa- I tried to watch it. It's very <laughs> And watch. it was difficult to watch. So I have to go back and finish watching <laughs> <laughs> when I'm ready. Um, but the storytelling is very true. That's why it's so triggering. It's so truthful in what happened. Yeah. You know, there. I guess it's the journalist in me. I've been telling Lena about our family's history with the residential schools since she was little. I think she was in grade two and she did a, you know, she did it for show and tell. She talked about the residential schools. And she told her classmates what happened to her grandma. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no one would take a baby away at four. 
Mm-hmm. No one would take people our age away. That's a lie. She's no, it's true. They mm-hmm. took my grandma away. And so she's always been really passionate about this. And she was really affected by when the graves were found in yeah. Kelowna. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's really heavy on her. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. But that's why she wanted to get this part. She auditioned for Tiona. And so she really wanted Tiona. But when she was asked to do Bach Moody or Mahdi, um, she was like, okay, well, this is, oh, sorry, this is a part of the story I'm supposed to play. Yeah. So she found it hard and she's, you know, my, Amina's finding it hard too, because Amina has a really hard mm-hmm. place. So they, she's, I have two weeks off. You know, should I go back to Vancouver up to Kitimat before I film again? Or I really want to stay here and support Amina. I was like, do that, do that. Yeah. Just ask them, can I just stay and wait for my thing and support her? And we don't think about that because when we see our our children, our grandchildren who didn't have to go to residential school, but there's still that connection for them and they do get affected and they are affected by what's happening, like the graves being discovered and stuff. Yeah. yeah. We got to make sure they're okay. Yeah. Our young people. We really do. Because mm-hmm. that when, when they say young people are closest to the spirits and stuff mm-hmm. like that. When, in the old days, we had ways of protecting them. We had yeah. rules for protecting them. Like with the Haudenosaunee, with the buckskin. Oh, know, the tethering. The tethering. Or don't walk on graves or mm-hmm. ch- keep children away from burials and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but it's just like back home we had similar things where you know you have to protect the children Mm -hmm. because they're more they're more open yeah to that thing you have to watch for them and they're the ones that have to keep on telling the story of this Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i do feel like they feel a certain responsibility to it Mm -hmm. i know i did for the longest time and I one of my first stories was on this guy named Willie Blackwater and he was one of the first litigants and as a devout member of the United Church he sued the United Church mm-hmm. and the federal government for billions of dollars millions of dollars you know and um and the Mi'kmaq lady too you know she her lawsuit was integral to that and I really felt passionate about having to get that story out there. And it was like, I, but sometimes I would feel like a ghost. And I'm like, hello, <laughs> hello, hello. And, but people weren't ready to hear it a lot yeah. of times. People weren't yeah. ready to hear it. And yeah. I would have to fight to get those stories yeah. on the air. Like I would have to negotiate I saved you twice this week with Keela the baby whale turning one <laughs> and with these other stories. Let me tell this story. And they're like, oh, yeah. people don't want to hear those stories, Carla. They would and, tell me that. And even today, I think that people still don't want to hear the stories today, but we can't be concerned with that. Yeah. We can't be concerned with if you don't want to hear them or we only need to be concerned with we need to tell them yeah yeah 
And I think in some ways, there's some energy from the spirit world going, my story is going to be told, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so there's, I think there's power, definitely. There's influence coming from that. And Canada can't really, it wants to go forward. It wants to go forward. It's been trying to deal with some of these things. But until you honestly deal with, um, you know, honestly deal with things, that moving forward is, it's, you're going to stumble. Yeah. And say here in Ontario, the federal government, the provincial government wants to go ahead, but not really deal with the land and treaty disputes and land claims and whatnot and indigenous rights and it wants to like push it aside and ignore it and whatnot but it comes up and then when you come want to develop something it's ah. and it's when I was working in media I'd be like I would call the province on it. I'd be like like why don't why isn't the minister here why isn't the premier here like mm-hmm. all the other provinces have their premiers here but you just have you yeah. mid-level bureaucrat yeah yeah and they'd be like oh he's over in india doing some important stuff there i was like the important (laughs) stuff is to lay the foundation like all the other premiers seem to recognize that (laughs) but you don't so it's it's all tied into one another like land rights residential schools and like what happened with us but i think one of the biggest unspoken thing is the sexual abuse Mm -hmm. that's come out of the whole residential school thing and that it's it's not just an epidemic in some of our communities it is a pandemic Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is Mm -hmm. and i see people i see women i see children and it's that that really upsets me that's just something that our communities don't seem ready to deal with yet And I always think that our communities have had historically so much to deal with and such little time to do it. Yes. That we're always playing catch up in in the issues we have to deal with. Yeah. Plus, we're underfunded. So how can we have the counselors and the specialized counselors and everything we need to deal with? Exactly. No, it's true. It's just like there's been so much on our plate mm-hmm. and so much of our politics is led by Ottawa yeah like with mm-hmm. the native organizations and whatnot it's like their agendas are guided by Ottawa federal policies and stuff like that <laughs> so it's and we try to say let's deal with the real issues or let's deal with it's tough because it's like you need an economic base yeah well, you yeah. need that yeah and but also the whole colonial system is, I know, but I always give thanks to Sagora Diso for resilience. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. And it's, hope. It's true. <clears throat> One of the things I think about is how brilliant our people are and how brilliant our people have always been. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine our ancestors? They negotiated where our treaty rights, like a lot of our treaty rights, like where they wanted education for their children health benefits, that we don't get taxed in our communities and whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and like they saw how many generations ahead and they fought for those so yeah. they died for those rights yeah and so it's it, that's important but i don't know if we consider that so much and that we have to try to do that for our children yeah we have to try to do that for our grandchildren and for those mm-hmm. that are coming like how do we protect them from what the world is going through now yeah so it's a it's a it's a big task for sure, I, which I don't think we can solve today. No, 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 no. Wait, again, I went off topic. Sorry, I tend to do that. It's well, like I just loved our visit today. I really loved our visit today. And I haven't seen you for a while, so we had a lot to talk about and unpack. So I'd like to say Nyawe for Carla Robinson coming in today and sharing with us her perspective on so many different things. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Ona. Ona. This has been the Ohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located at the top of the homepage of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Road to Your Name. This has been the Ohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.